Adam had started staying out late a few nights. And so Eve became upset and suspicious. You're running around with other women, she accused. You're being unreasonable, Adam responded. You're the only woman on earth. The quarrel continued until Adam fell asleep, only to be awakened by someone poking him in the chest. It was Eve. What do you think you're doing? Adam demanded. Counting your ribs, she said. (laughs) If you don't get it, ask Tommy. He gets it. (laughs) Probably this wouldn't be the biggest issue in the marriage between Adam and Eve. But I don't think any of us would deny that infidelity, immorality, unfaithfulness is a huge problem today. Statistics vary widely on how common this is. Which maybe reflects the difficulty of getting accurate figures on something that's based on dishonesty and deceit. But even if the figures can't be fully trusted, they still paint a really grim picture of the state of marriage today. In the US, research claims that over a third of married men will cheat on their wives at some point in their lives. Did you hear that? A third of married men. And for women, the proportion is only slightly low at one in four. As a result, the statistics say that more than 50% of all US marriages will be impacted by one of their spouses being unfaithful. More than 50%. And although it's kind of difficult for me to to find out full statistics about in Ireland, it seems that the situation in Ireland isn't that different. A few years ago, a survey commissioned by RTE for a game show reported that 40% of respondents admitted to being unfaithful in a relationship. And the Ashley Madison website that was in the news last year, you probably remember it, when their database was hacked and made public, They claimed to have over 150,000 Irish members, most of whom are married people looking for an affair. And probably most sadly of all, this isn't just a problem for those outside of the church. A recent study by the Barna Group, they do a lot of, of research and statistics and surveys and stuff like that, they concluded that nearly a third of the Christian men that they surveyed admitted to an extramarital affair when they were married. And so what Jesus says here in this Sermon on the Mount is so important. Although it touches on on a very personal and possibly even a very painful subject, it's crucially relevant to each one of us as Jesus calls us to a different standard of purity. So we're going to read it this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, down to verse 30. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we'll stop there. The seventh of the Ten Commandments declared, Do not commit adultery. It called the community of God's people to respect and honour marriage as God designed it. Now I know that society has changed what it means by marriage. But I believe that God's word is clear. Genesis 2 and 24 says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and, will, and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. God's design for marriage is out of a public commitment between one man and one woman to live together in a loving, supportive, exclusive and intimate relationship for their whole lives. And it's such a a precious and wonderful gift from God that we need to value it. We need to honour it. We need to protect it in every way we can. Hebrews chapter 13 and 4 says this, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. The Bible is clear that physical and emotional intimacy between a husband and wife was created by God and for us to enjoy. In the Old Testament, if you've ever read Solomon's Song of Songs, you'll read how it celebrates the passionate love between a bride and a groom. And their desire for and delight in each other. But there are right and there are wrong ways for that desire to be fulfilled. God said, do not commit adultery because sexual intimacy within marriage honours God and blesses us. But outside of marriage, it dishonours God. And it hurts us. Of course, some people disagree. They say that what two consenting adults do in private hurts nobody. But I really hope that we are not so naive. Listen to this letter written by to an, an advice columnist. It's written to, to a woman called Abby. Dear Abby, I can answer the letter from upset and impatient The married woman who was waiting for her married lover to leave his wife. I cheated on my wife for years. Then about 20 years ago I had an affair with a woman and we fell in love. When you are running around it's always under ideal conditions. It's romantic, forbidden and exciting. But we really didn't know each other. The love that we thought we couldn't live without destroyed our lives. And caused untold pain to our families. We gave up our children, our careers and our homes for a marriage that lasted three years. Since that time I have remarried. The woman has taught me how to be faithful to her and to myself. My daughter lives with us and she has forgiven me. But she has not forgotten. My son who is younger still carries scars from neglect. I have spent more time trying to repair what I messed up than I have ever enjoying myself. 
When people cheat, the pain they cause is always greater than the pleasure they get. Please tell your reader this. Adultery is always a betrayal of trust. And so it shatters relationships. It devastates families. It causes sorrow and suffering to so many people. Now, of course, through grace and forgiveness, God can restore what sin has destroyed. Our God is an expert at that. But it can be such a painful process. And even then, the scars can remain for years to come. So do not commit adultery. It's a a command to protect us. It's for our good. But the Bible tells us that adultery can create even greater damage than just the hurt it causes to us. Hebrews 13 and 4 continues, Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The world calls it by different names. An affair, a fling, a one night stand, a mistake, or even love. But God calls it what it is. Sex outside of marriage is always immoral. It is always sin. And it brings those who commit it as being guilty under the judgment of God. That doesn't mean that adultery is the worst sin in the world. Or is worse than other sin. Or that those who are guilty of it can never be forgiven. Because of what we have just celebrated this morning at a communion of what Jesus has done on the cross, that means that if we accept that through faith in Him, then we can be forgiven of every sin. That's what we believe, isn't it? But it does mean that adultery is always wrong and should have no place in our lives. The righteous life that God is looking for is one where faithfulness and marriage is honoured. No questions asked. But just like in the previous section that we looked at last week, Jesus goes much further than this. He calls us to a greater righteousness. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they taught the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. And they said that it prohibited only the act of adultery. So long as you avoided that act, then you were pure. And so the Pharisee in Jesus' parable could go into the temple and with pride in his heart, he could pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers. Adulterer. He hadn't slept with any woman apart from his wife. So he thought he'd kept this law. This was another gold star for him. A brownie point for, with God. Another reason why God would be pleased with him. And at times, Christians have fallen into that exact same trap. They've arrogantly stood 
and condemn those who have been caught in adultery. Especially if they've been high profile Christian leaders. They've pointed the finger and they've judged them and they've thrown stones and accusations against them. If they've been caught in adultery or have lived a lifestyle of promiscuity. But Jesus in this, par- this passage doesn't allow us to do that. Because he said that the standard of righteousness that God is looking for is so much deeper. Verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is directing this to men here. But I think it equally applies to women. I think we were not going to try to to separate the two. The purity that God is looking for in our lives is not just an external one of behaviour and action. God is looking for a purity of thought and of heart. If we are married then this means that faithfulness to our spouses doesn't only cover our actions, but it covers our thinking, our imaginations as well. It means we don't look lustfully at someone else. We don't fantasise about them. We don't dream about them. To do that would be to commit adultery with that person in our hearts. I think this also has an application to those who are single, of course, as well. The purity that God is looking for in our lives is also a total one. It doesn't only mean that we should avoid sexual immorality in our actions, but also in our words, in our thoughts, in our desires. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 4. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. This is the challenging standard that God is setting, that Jesus is setting for us here. God is looking for a complete purity in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, and our desires. This is what it means to be God's holy people. David says in Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Maybe you remember back when we were looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But if this is God's standard of righteousness, then the natural question for us to ask is, how then can a man be righteous before God? 
How can one born of woman be pure in God's sight? If purity in God's sight means total and complete purity in thought as well as in action, then who of us would have claimed this morning that we have maintained that level for the whole of our lives? Who of us could stand before God with arrogance or pride and say, I thank you God that I am not like the adulterers or the impure. If this is God's standard of righteousness, then none of us have the right to point the finger at anybody else. Because we all recognize our own guilt. The fact that we've all fallen short of that standard one way or another. And so what Jesus says here puts us all in the same boat. It humbles us before God. It convicts us of our sin. But Jesus also wants it to us it to, to lead us to the cross. Where in repentance and faith we can find the mercy and the grace that we need. That's the purpose of the law, remember. It's to lead us to Christ. So that we can come with our willingness and our readiness and our humility to recognize that we need to be forgiven. We need to be accepted. Not on the basis of what we have done, but simply because of God's grace. So today... As I've been celebrating this morning, we can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can stand in God's holy place. Not because we are good people. Not because we are righteous in ourselves. But because the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we have put our faith in Jesus this morning, then we have been declared perfect, righteous, holy in God's sight. No matter what is in our past, no matter what we are ashamed of, no matter what guilt nags at us, if we have trusted in Jesus, then the blood of Jesus has purified us from all our sin. And then, and then, and only then, As God's forgiven people. Jesus wants us then to seek to live out this righteous righteous standard in our lives. And for that we need something quite drastic. Now unfortunately some people have taken verse 29 and 30. Literally. And have quite literally mutilated their bodies in an attempt to avoid sin. Apart from being completely misguided, this of course just doesn't work, does it? The problem is not in our physical flesh, but it's in our hearts. A blind amputee can succumb just as much to lust as somebody with all their body parts. So we're not talking about actually cutting something off or out today. But Jesus does use this kind of drastic, uh, this drastic language because he is talking about taking drastic action. He's talking about doing something really quite radical here. He says that if we want to live in purity in our lives as God's forgiven people, 
then we need to be ruthless in getting rid of the things that would lead us into sin. We need to be ruthless. Colossians 3 and 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Get rid of it. And so even if it hurts, we must not let anything stand in the way of us enjoying God's best. Of living out this different life. This blessed life. This God-honoring life. Of following Jesus. We need to be willing to remove from our lives as much of the things that would lead us into temptation as possible. So first of all, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Not physically, remember. Please get that. I think Jesus is saying that if, we, if it's something that we are seeing, if something that we're watching is causing us to sin, then we mustn't look at it. I think this is just so relevant for us in our, in our age when we are exposed to so many seductive images. According to, to Gen 3X, which is a ministry that helps people, those caught, who are caught up in this kind of temptation, there are 2 million pornographic websites on the internet with 420 million pages. In the US, there is a pornographic movie created every 39 minutes. Every 39 minutes. And the annual revenue of this evil industry exceeds $97 billion a year. It's a huge problem in our world. But even if we did everything we could to avoid the the more extreme forms of that, then it's still so difficult to avoid this temptation in our lives because it's presented to us through advertising, through books, magazines, music, entertainment. It's in our face again and again and again. So if we're going to live this righteous life that God wants for us, then we need to take some drastic steps to cut this out of our lives. Now today we're not going to be talking about rules that we need to impose on our lives. We're not going to be talking about, you know, we can't do this or we can't do this. Because this isn't about imposing rules. That's what the Pharisees did. This is about us recognising and acknowledging our own weaknesses. Honestly facing up to the fact that we have weaknesses within us and facing up to the things that lead us as individuals away from God's best and into thoughts and and desires that are just simply wrong in God's sight. And so it's about us personally making a commitment before God not to look at the things that would lead us away from Him. This is what Job declared. Job chapter 31 verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. If our eyes are leading us into sin, if something that we're looking at is leading us into sin, if something that we're watching is leading us into sin, if there's a habit in our life, whatever it is, 
that's leading us away from what God wants. We need to make a decision this morning before God to get rid of it. To root it out of our lives so that we can live God's best. Secondly, Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If something we are doing is causing us to sin, then we mustn't do it. This is one of the things that protected the evangelist Billy Graham and his team from stumbling like so many other high-profile Christian leaders. He got together with his team at the start of his ministry and they made a covenant with each other. There was a number of different things that they covenanted with about, but this is one of them. This is what he said. We pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. From that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. We determined that the Apostles Paul mandate to the young pastor Timothy would be ours as well, flee the evil desires of youth. This is what they did. Not as a rule that needs to be applied to everybody. But this is what they recognise. Here is the danger situations. Here are the situations that could lead us into doing something or, or focusing on something that is simply wrong. They could take away all that we're doing good for God. So we're just not going to go there. We're just not going to do that. Even if it restricts us, even if we, it hurts us, even if people think we're being stupid or, 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 or over the top about these things, we are going to do this because we are going to try to seek to honour God in our lives. So as I say, again, this is not about us imposing rules and the kinds of behaviour that's right or wrong. It's not about us saying, you can't go to that place or you can't go to that place or you can't watch that TV programme or whatever. If we did, then we'd be in danger of just doing what the Pharisees did. Because what they did is they defined all of the things that were wrong and all of the things that were right so they could just limit the law. Because once you kept all these things, once you did all their rules, then you thought you were doing okay. Remember, Jesus' standard is much higher than that. It's not about limiting the law into a list of do's and don'ts that sound easy. It's about seeking God's best for us which is total purity in our heart and our mind and our thought and our desires. So it's about personally making a decision not to go anywhere, not to be with anyone or to do anything that would lead us away from where God wants us to be or what God wants in our lives. It's about seeking God's will in every aspect of our lives. And actually this is a principle that we need to apply to all the various different aspects of our lives and with every temptation that we face we show our commitment before God not by placing ourselves in difficult situations and trying as hard as we can to resist but rather instead from running from those temptations by avoiding those situations those places or yes even those people that would lead us into sin. I'm sure you remember later on in this sermon, Jesus taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
It's a prayer that recognizes our weakness and our need to avoid those places and those activities where we wouldn't be strong enough to resist, where we would be tempted to, to go into a place where God does not want us to be, that would lead us away from fellowshipping and living for Him. But of course, this is a prayer also that declares that we can't do it on our own. This is a, a prayer that we pray together. Lead us not into temptation. It's a community prayer. And so we need to support each other in the challenge of, of living for God. It is so tough to live a life that's honoring to God in this world. Because each one of us, whether we're, whatever the situations of our lives, whether married or single, whether we're out in the workplace or at home or whatever it is, we are inundated again and again with, with the temptation that would lead us away from what God wants. So we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other in this. Encourage each other. Not looking to point the finger and judge each other, but looking to come alongside and support and encourage each other. But even more than that, even more than just the fact that we need each other, we need to depend on God for this. We need to depend on God's help, His direction, His power, His strength to overcome the temptation around us. How do we do that? Well, it's not through stricter rules. Neither is it through beating ourselves up about it because we feel so guilty. That doesn't purify our hearts. That doesn't lead us into the life that God wants. Instead, it's through our deepening of our understanding of God's grace in our lives. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. What teaches us and encourages us to live this pure life that God looks, is looking for? It's God's grace in our life. It's being amazed at God's wonderful love for us. It's being absolutely blown away by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. It's about rejoicing and celebrating the fact that in God's sight, we are perfectly righteous this morning. That's what empowers and enables us and equips us to then live this life. So if you go away just feeling guilty this morning, I would be really disappointed. Because it's not guilt that motivates us to live God's life. It's God's grace that motivates us and empowers us. And then it's also a deepening dependence on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit as He increasingly fills our hearts and life. Paul says in Galatians 5 and 16, Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. How do we overcome those desires that pull us away from God? By connecting more and more to God. Spending time in His presence, listening for His voice, reading His Word, fellowshipping with His people, seeking the God's power and presence and direction in our lives as we depend on Him. So this is the righteous life that God is looking for in us. 
Yes, it's an incredibly high standard of complete purity in heart and behaviour. It's one that goes against our culture and that goes against our own sinful nature. But it is one that God is committed to seeing and increasingly become a reality in our lives. God, is, His desire is to purify our hearts and to enable Him, enable us to live for Him each day. And so I pray that each one of us in our different situations and with our different struggles will today commit ourselves again to following Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to guide us, to empower us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives for His honour and for His glory.